0: Welcome to this Financial Advisor podcast, a weekly podcast where I speak to leading financial advisors. My guest today is Martin de Kock, a wealth manager and co-founder at ASCOR Independent Wealth Managers. Hi, Martin.
1: Hi. Uh, no.
0: Tell me, how did you end up in the financial advisory field and what are your fields of interest?
1: My profession, I'm an auditor, chartered accountant. My passion is investments and financial planning and how I ended up in the field of financial planning and investments. Initially, we had to refer clients who needed assistance in life insurance and investments and so forth to brokers and I just realized that um, a lot of those brokers were not up to scratch in terms of qualifications and uh, expertise and knowledge and subsequently, I went in 2007 and 2008, I did the... A certified financial planner through the University of um, Free State and in 2008 I did the advanced diploma in investments and asset types. So, and that was just actually to start assisting my audit and accounting clients with that, uh, informa- uh, that advice they needed in service. Just also just making my service offering a more comprehensive and complete offering.
0: I just want to ask you, um, I'll phrase the question now, but um, yes. about the, the CFP qualifications, is it something that you have to keep updating or do you just sort of learn on the job after that?
1: You got Firstly, to, for, your, for you to be able to use the designation, mm-hmm. you have to be registered with the Financial Planning Institute of mm-hmm. South Africa, which is uh, also affiliate to the FPSB, the Financial Planning S- uh, Standards Board, which is the worldwide uh, body. So you've got to firstly, you've got to be registered with the Financial Planning Institute to be able to use your designation. And then secondly, from the FBI side, they have CPD, so um, continued professional development, which is a certain amount of updates that you need to attend on an annual basis to keep your uh, designation or registration in good standing with the FBI. So it's a continuous uh, learning process.
0: Just changing the focus to um, your relationship with your clients, Um, with our current uncertain economic future um, and policies on the table such as expropriation without compensation, has financial immigration, or at least the interest in it, been increasing among your clients?
1: I would say so. It has, definitely. But uh, maybe more, and something you didn't mention, is the new legislation with regards to tax on uh, expats, Mm. Uh, people uh, south africans uh, living abroad earning income in places like the middle east and other places where they're not being taxed there and uh, looking uh, going forward from the 1st of march 2020 uh, in the past all that income uh, if you uh, complied with the um, with the rules in terms of the 183 days or uh, in a year or six, of which 65 had to be continuous In the past, if you complied with those requirements, all that income earned offshore would be exempt of tax. And they've changed that legislation that the first million is tax-free and everything above that will be taxed locally. Now, that probably on its own, I think, would... um, probably be, account for the biggest por- portion of people being interested in the uh, financial immigration. But I think the, the point you do mention, the economic uncertainty and expropriation without compensation, probably does play on people's minds as well.
0: I would imagine that the tax um, implications are quite hectic if you are just immigrating you know, for any other reason, And for example, around your RAs um, and your other investments.
1: Yes, it is, and what needs to be borne in mind is that, uh, look, it's similar to other advices, you you don't have a one-size-fits-all, so we need to actually look at each individual's uh, situation and circumstances to actually make an informed uh, call, and the big tax implications of financial immigration is that you effectively, when you do financially immigrate, um, that is uh, deemed disposal of, even though you don't sell, but the deemed disposal of all your assets, excluding fixed property, and the payment of capital gains tax on those assets. And that's on worldwide assets, not just local assets. And uh, the problem with that is because you haven't disposed of assets, it could result in you being uh, cash-strapped in terms of having to pay a capital gains tax and you haven't actually disposed of any assets. And the other thing that many people miss um, in actually giving the advice as well as taking advice is if you return to South Africa within a five-year period after having financially emigrated, uh, from South Side, they will deem that to be an unsuccessful emigration. If you have an unsuccessful emigration for those years that you your income wasn't taxed in South Africa, with that unsuccessful immigration, SARS will then go back and reopen those tax assessments and uh, tax you as if you haven't immigrated. And a lot of people miss out on that five-year period that you're not allowed to come back.
0: So does that mean you're not allowed to come back even for a holiday? Is
1: it? No, no, you can go, come back for a holiday. You, uh, there's a time limit that you're not allowed to come back and spend more than 90 days okay. in, in South Africa. But coming back for a holiday or a funeral or whatever the case may be, is not uh, is not a part of that um, uh, failed that that failed um, uh, integration.
0: So would double tax agreements come in to play there?
1: They can because it is a consideration because with the new legis- tax legislation on expats effective from 1 March, you do have double tax agreements that come into play, and what it basically boils down to is that you. Do your tax calculation because our basis of tax is based on worldwide income. You do your tax calc locally and then whatever was taxed offshore, if there's a double tax agreement, you get a credit for that tax and then you'll end up having to pay the difference between what calculated yeah and what was paid. And keep in mind there's some of your jurisdictions where the people work where specifically Dubai, where there's no tax. So that full tax liability will then actually be incurred locally and the taxpayer will have to uh, pay that bill. That's
0: very interesting. In that article I mentioned, um, they said that they, they estimate there's over 100,000 South Africans in Dubai alone. Um, who will be affected by that expat tax. So it's quite significant. Yes. and
1: Another thing that a lot of people don't take into account is they just think of the salaries they earn. But most of your, especially your Dubai ex, uh, um, expats, have free accommodation and uh, free transport. Now, those, from a tax point of view in South Africa, free transport and free accommodation is deemed to be a fringe benefit. Now, currently, it's not shown anywhere on a payslip or anything. It's just in the uh, agreement. Now, if you just think of Dubai, it could easily, your accommodation could easily end up exceeding the million rand exemption, So, which would mean your total salary would be taxed. And not uh, you wouldn't qualify for the exemption because the exemption's been utilised already by your um, fringe benefit of free housing and uh, travel.
0: In general, for South Africans you know, who are staying put, do you find that tax avoidance is increasing?
1: I think there is an inclination to avoid tax. Just keep in mind that avoiding tax is, is legal. Uh, evading tax is the illegal one. But the tax avoidance, there's more and more attempts to use existing legislation to try and find loopholes to pay less tax. And I think it's in general, it's probably a feeling of many taxpayers that just feel that their taxes are not being utilised by government uh, to their benefit because of that and also the increasing um, tax rate for individuals, because I think South Africa has one of the highest tax rates for individuals uh, in the world, and I think people are just um, sort of getting tired of seeing all the bad spending uh, from government side and are looking at trying to reduce the tax bill. I think also with the economy as it is, uh, people are starting to struggle more and more because of the low growth.
0: What are some of these loopholes that you can use to uh, reduce your tax exposure?
1: I think SARS is from their side in terms of legislation most of the loopholes. I think the one glaring uh, opportunity that's still available and uh, legal as well is your contributions to retirement annuities because effectively your contributions to retirement annuities are uh, partly subsidised by SARS in that If you are paying tax at, uh, say, a rate of 40%, uh, for every 10,000 you contribute to a retirement annuity, you'll be saving the tax rate on that, being 4,000. So, effectively, you are paying 6,000 rand for a 10,000 investment. And that is one of the the blatant, well, the obvious uses of tax legislation to reduce your tax bill is the contribution to a retirement annuity. An additional benefit is keep in mind that you're because it's a retirement product, um, you have uh, safety against the claims of creditors, excluding divorce, of course. And then also another opportunity, uh, which doesn't save you tax as such, but the, the proceeds and growth on tax-free savings accounts are free of tax. So that is another option you could look at to, to save a bit of tax. Keeping in mind that you have an annual limit of 33,000 that you can't exceed and then also you're looking at a total contributions in a lifetime per taxpayer of 500,000. So often a number of years you do hit that limit where you can't contribute any further. And then the last one I can immediately think of in terms of saving taxes if your job requires you to travel for work you could structure your salary to include a travel allowance. Just bearing in mind that for the claim against that travel allowance, you actually need to keep quite a detailed uh, logbook that uh, uh, complies with the requirements of I'm um,
0: Moving slightly along to estate planning, do you find that people make enough provision for death taxes?
1: Um, what we find in practice is uh, very few new clients that, actually, that we actually engage with, um, have had their previous advisors actually do a estate liquidity calculation, and you you don't have any clue as to what the liquidity requirement is should you pass away if you do not do an estate liquidity calculation. So, what uh, just to explain that uh, in practical terms is you could have a number of assets uh, in your in your estate and pass away, and because there's no liquidity executor could end up having to uh, sell property and things like that to free up liquidity to cover uh, estate expenses, which could be estate duty, executive fees, any outstanding debts, and things like that. So there is, and generally, uh, typically in a situation where you have sufficient assets, to address that problem is basically as simple as just changing a beneficiary on one of your policies. And not making it a direct beneficiary, but making your estate the beneficiary of that specific policy. And that's very simple to actually then address that um, liquidity shortfall um, uh, uh, for any shortfalls that do exist at, at death.
0: And have your clients been more concerned about the retirement savings, given the volatile markets and talk of prescribed assets, among other things?
1: I think usually clients become concerned when markets uh, don't uh, give good uh, returns. And fortunately, the 2019 uh, financial or calendar year has been a, a good year in terms of returns. 2018 was terrible, and we did find um, doing reviews for clients early in 2019 was a difficult conversation, because uh, what tends to happen is when returns are uh, are gone clients tend to start looking more critically at things like your underlying costs in managing investments and administrative costs and things like that, which those type of discussions fall away when you have quite decent returns like was the case in in 2019. But um, I think, um, especially looking at uh, what you mentioned, the prescribed asset, that is a point of concern. Um, I do think before it would... uh, would, um, Actually go there where they actually maybe implement legislation like that. There's lots of consultation that would still have to happen before that uh, would be considered because I think it would the knock-on effect in the markets and stuff would be quite uh, quite substantial. But because just think of it, if they were to say just for example 30% of retirement savings needed to be in bonds. Those 30% would mean that asset managers and platforms would have to sell off uh, any excessive assets like equities to up their bond holdings, and that could lead to markets being uh, depressed because of a lot of uh, entities having to sell investments. So I'm not sure if that's, if it will at least talk, and I don't think it's in the near future, but it is something that I think they are mindful of or thinking about. I think what, just, what one just needs to remember is that um, prescribed acid is not something new. It was also done previously. I think it came into effect in South Africa in 86, if I recall, and uh, up to about, around about 94, I think. I'm not sure about the end date, but it has been done before, so it's not going to be something new, but I don't think it's good for markets when uh, the state starts prescribing as to what assets need to be held in retirement funds. And I think your Regulation 28 already has a a negative effect on potential growth, especially for young investors uh, that are still young, that are very far away from retirement. To have caps on equity exposure and stuff for young investors, in my mind, is not good. But I think also, if you do consider uh, the intention, I think, of Regulation 28 was to protect investors from advisors investment so-called investment advisors who are not experienced enough to be able to make the investment calls and um, allocate funds to appropriate uh, risk-based um, underlying assets.
0: And the arguments against Regulation 28 for young investors is that it's too conservative, am I right?
1: Correct, yeah, because I think for any of my investors that are saying at least 10 years from retirement, you want to to have as much as possible, as close to 100% of your underlying investments in your retirement funds in growth assets. Because if you're looking at a time frame of longer than 10 years to retirement, 10 years is more than enough for if there is any substantial market correction for that correction to reverse and recover. If one looks at historically at uh, at market corrections, in terms of if you're looking at uh, bull and bear markets, your bear markets tend to be very sh- much shorter than your bull market. So you could look typically at a, a bear market of 12 to 18 months where your bull markets, looking at the current one since 2008 up to now, it's been running for more than 12 close well, on 12 years, which is one of the most uh, the longest uh, bull markets that we've had uh, to date.
0: Are there any local investment opportunities or sectors that have caught your eye or that are backing the returns trend? Yeah, no, I think
1: um, currently uh, because our bonds, our, our bond markets or our bond, local bonds, are pricing in a, well, according to most uh, analysts and, and investors, um, they are, uh, the, our bonds are pricing in a downgrade later uh, in March. You can earn um, easily inflation plus four to five percent, which that is considered to be low risk, because that's what the the yield is on on bonds. So that typically just to exceed your required inflation growth, that is a, quite a safe bet. But on the other side, you could look at uh, sectors. I think in the last year, probably one of the sectors that has really come under severe pressure is uh, listed property one and also uh, your industrials and consumables, things like uh, Woolworths, Mr. Price, ShopRite, and those those type of companies, where there's been uh, quite serious re-ratings in those type of assets. And what tends to happen very often, some of those re-ratings are overdone, where the prices fall below the net uh, realizable value or net asset value of the underlying company. So there definitely are opportunities where the growth or where there's been some uh, serious re-ratings where I think there are buying opportunities.
0: What do you wish that your clients knew?
1: I think probably one of the the biggest challenges for clients is that when we invest, it's it's a marathon, it's long-term. So I think the industry probably has been a bit on the naughty side. If you look at a lot of your your prizes, your Raging Bull awards and things like that, you very often, and even your, your uh, comparatives when the, the different fund managers compare to others, they talk of long-term investing, but when they compare, they look at uh, time frames like one year and three years, five years. Now, typically, you don't encourage good investor behavior if you on the one hand referring to long-term, but when you compare to other funds, And when the competitions take place, you're looking at a a, a three-year period, things like that. Three-year is short-term, so it sort of encourages bad investor behavior. And what we also tell clients um, is to also, um, if you know that you are emotional about losing money, don't look at your investment statement on a monthly basis because you're going to have sleepless nights. And I think also um, what one needs to do is actually take your client uh, through the whole investment strategy that they uh, that they know that you're not doing things just off the cuff you've got a plan that you're working according to and if your plan is to achieve a certain growth after a seven-year or a 10-year period there's no point in changing strategy in year two or three because then you, you've you got no chance of having achieved that uh, initial unless you have uh, unless you have of course. A change in typically, if you've been following a fund that has been performing extremely well because of a certain fund manager, and then the fund manager moves to another uh, to another company, that could be a reason to reconsider. But again, you don't take long term decisions based on what's happening in in the short term or in, in the interim. And I think I think the one of the things we tried to tell to teach clients is. Sometimes just sitting on your hand is also a decision. And don't just, for the case of, for the mere fact of doing something, do the wrong thing. Because I think clients destroy capital by taking knee-jerk reactions in acting emotionally when things are up and down.
0: Would you like to add anything else?
1: I think if you've found a decent or a qualified and experienced financial planner and they've taken you through the process, what I think is very important is to at least understand the process that the advisor is taking you through because your chance of sticking to a strategy if you don't understand the strategy is very much smaller and reduced to actually sticking to a strategy that you do understand. And have the advisor explain again and again until you do understand it. And also I think what's very important is that um, your wealth that you accumulate is your responsibility. You'd never delegate that responsibility to your financial planner. You put in the financial planner's expertise to help you manage your responsibility with regards to your your funds and your wealth. You don't delegate that responsibility away.
0: That was Martin DeCock, co-founder at ASCOR Independent Wealth Managers.